Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host today, Inman Erwin, and today we have something a little bit different. I host another podcast called Stranger... in a tangled wilderness um which uh strangers also puts out this podcast um where every month we take a zine that strangers puts out and we turn it into an audio feature and we do an interview with the author and we had a two-part feature called blood soil and frozen tv dinners by matthew dougal and it's a short story about prepping from a very strange perspective that of two right-wing preppers facing a mysterious collapse of society. This short story is a parody, and I promise that the two main POV characters are not the heroes of the tale. It's a really funny story, and I do an interview with Matthew afterward about prepping mentalities, fiction, and other really neat stuff. If you like this episode, check out my other podcast that this is featured from. Um, I did not record I did not re-record the outro, so you'll get a little taste of Margaret playing the piano, because she wrote the theme music for the for the Strangers podcast. Um, you'll also get to hear our wonderful reader, Bee Flowers, narrate the story, and you can follow along with the transcript, or you can read um, a like PDF of the feature at tangledwilderness.org, where you can read all of our featured zines for free. But before all of that... We are a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on that network. Do 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 do. KiteLine is a weekly 30-minute radio program focusing on issues in the prison system. You'll hear news along with stories from prisoners and former prisoners as well as their loved ones. You'll learn what prison is, how it functions, and how it impacts all of us. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. You can hear us on the Channel Zero Network and find out more at kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Blood, Soil, and Frozen TV Dinners by Matthew Dougal Narrated by Bee Flowers Published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness Katie sat wide-eyed beneath the kitchen table and hugged her knees to her chest. She was shaking, vibrating visibly. Tanner put his finger to his lips and prayed that her silent tears would remain just that. There was no time to stop and calm her down. Not again. He moved slowly around the kitchen, fumbling through cupboards and pulling out pre-wrapped packages of food. Always be prepared. Tanner had practiced this before things went dark, but it was different doing it for real. His hands hadn't been so shaky back then. A noise on the porch. His body froze before his mind registered the sound. Tanner dropped into a crouch and crossed the room to the window, willing every cell in his body to radiate confidence toward his baby girl. His hand found the Glock 17 at his belt, and he brought it up in front of him, the familiar feel of the grip reassuring. He took a breath, steadied himself, and raised his eyes to the level of the windowsill. The muscles in his thighs steeled, and he remained unblinking, 
utterly still, staring out into the darkness. After 30 or 45 nerve-twinging seconds, Tanner drew breath and relaxed. His quads were burning, and they thanked him as he straightened. He could hear the specter of his ex-wife in his head, telling him to lose some weight, exercise more. Well, she'd left, and that was 135 pounds gone right there. She'd probably say that was a good start. An unbearably loud ringing pierced the silence and sent him diving to the floor, landing awkwardly on his gun and sounding a crash through the kitchen. A keening whine came from under the table, Katie shaken from her silence. The doorbell. Feeling foolish, Tanner twisted over his shoulder and hissed at his daughter to be quiet. Still prone, he crawled toward the hallway in the most reassuring manner he could manage and pointed his Glock at the front door. Footsteps, outside. Then a shadow appeared at the window. Tanner's heart pounded in his ears, more violent pulses of silence than sound, and his vision blurred as panic flooded his body. He'd heard the early reports of armed groups in the streets, some sort of fighting downtown, but he hadn't really believed they would come here. His legs were weak, and he silently thanked God that he was already on the floor. The shape at the window didn't move, frozen in the gloom, silhouetted by flickering light coming from the street. As Tanner's head cleared, he tried to take stock of what was happening. The apparition was vaguely man-shaped, but shorter and slighter, an ethereal grace evident even in its stillness. A voice called out, muffled through the door, the guttural sing-song completely at odds with the sleek form at the window. Tanner couldn't understand everything, but he thought he caught the words, little girl. A second shape mounted the porch alongside the first, similarly short, but squat and stocky, and grunted something to its companion in an alien tongue. Fluorescent light flooded the yard, and the voices momentarily disappeared beneath the growl of an angry engine. Tanner's breath caught. His trembling finger hovered over the trigger, and he willed the barrel to stay its swaying dance. Two shots exploded outside, loud shots from a much bigger gun than his. The creatures spun to face this new threat, their chatter rising in pitch and speed. They sounded panicked. Tanner sensed his opportunity. He was forgotten. All those hours of training kicked in, and muscle memory took over as he rose to one knee, took a two-handed grip, and unleashed a furious hail of fire at his front door. Keep your filthy hands off my daughter! He fired until he felt the Glock stop kicking. The magazine spent. As the cacophony faded, he realized he was screaming. Tanner! It's me, Blake! Stop shooting, goddammit! They're gone! Blake? Tanner mechanically reloaded his gun. Why? His throat was raw, his voice barely audible, even to him. He swallowed, fighting to control his breath, and cleared his throat. What are you doing here? Came to see if you were okay. Figured you and the kid might need a hand. A stocky, heavily muscled figure wearing fatigues and a plate carrier stepped up to the porch, visible through the splintered ruins that had been the front door. 
A halogen glow lanced through the holes, like the brilliant aura of some kind of avenging eagle. When this shit spread across the river from the city, we locked down. It was touch and go for a while, but things quieted down eventually. When they did, I came straight over. Good thing I got here when I did. The quick little fuckers ran for it, but I think you hit one of them. Figure stopped, pulled down the red, white, and blue bandana covering its mouth, and spat. Tanner had never been more relieved to see his buddy's foul-mouthed face. Or his M1A SOCOM-16 rifle. We're all right. Tanner's voice was exhausted, his body shivering as the adrenaline fled. Thank God I was prepared. Still, it's good to see you. Prepared shit. His buddy grinned. I've been telling you for years to get something heavy duty. Blake kicked the splintered remains of the door and his grin faded. You can't stay here. Those things will be back. Grab your girl and jump in the truck. Let's head to mine. She'll be safe there. The grin returned. Prepared shit. An hour later, they were sitting in the hole, as Blake affectionately called it. The hole was both name and description, although it perhaps undersold the amount of effort that had gone into its construction. Attached to the garage by a short, downward-sloping corridor, the hole was a full-blown bunker that spread underneath almost the entirety of Blake's backyard. Tanner was sitting in the main chamber eating Top Ramen chicken flavor. They had made the half-mile journey in silence. Lights down on the Tacoma, Tanner jumpy, Blake grim, Katie in a state of shock. The streets had looked completely foreign. The usual calming glow of LEDs replaced by the orange flicker of scattered flames. The familiar hum of traffic had been gone. Instead, gunfire had cracked in the distance. Blake's wife Lauren had buzzed them inside after Blake confirmed his identity via video feed three times at the gate, the door, and the entrance to the hole. The security was impressive. Lauren had ushered them inside, AR-15 at the ready. This is prepared, Blake was saying, as Katie stared blankly at her untouched ramen. Old owners, they had this backyard full of fruit trees, vegetables, fucking kale and kohlrabi. What good is that gonna do, I said. You gonna hide in the pumpkin patch with a slingshot? Idiots. Anyhow, me and Lauren, we wanted to be ready, so I've been building this the last two years. Ain't no one knows about it, not even the contractors. Blake sliced a finger across his throat and laughed. <laughs> I'm joking. But they were from one of them Mexican countries, had no idea what they were building. Good workers, though. They came here the right way, and I did the security all myself. Tanner laughed, too, but at what he didn't quite know. You took this all real serious. Yes, sir. You never really believed, but we did. Earl Swanson was right. This here's been a long time coming. It's just like he said, and we listened. And here we are, while you was laying on the floor waving around that little water pistol of yours. Tanner had listened, too, but apparently not well enough. There was only so much time he could watch an angry man on TV shouting about the state of the nation, no matter how prophetic he was turning out to be. Tanner tried to put up a strong front and flex his knowledge. He had listened, damn it. This it, then? The invasion? Earl said they've been preparing it for years, brainwashing people. 
recruiting sympathizers and traitors. It's worse than that. The invasion started way back. We just didn't notice. Well, most of us didn't. Earl did. He tried to warn us that the aliens had started infiltrating, landing in remote parts of the country, blending in, looking just like us. Blake spat. Well, not quite like us, but close fucking enough hiding out and biding their time. And now it's out in the open. Tanner looked from his friend's face to his daughter's, scared and staring, and trailed off. He may have been listening, but he sure as hell didn't understand. What's happening? Tanner asked. We've been laying low at home, locked down, and trying to wait out whatever this is. We haven't heard a thing since the power cut three days back. He could feel a surge of emotion building. Pent-up adrenaline and stress and fear and loneliness rolling over him in a wave as they were released. His stoicism wobbled. We're... Katie's scared and confused and tired and sick of hiding and we're all alone. What is all this? What's happening? Tanner realized he was shouting and stopped, taking a deep breath and lowering his voice. Blake, man, what the hell is going on? Blake never flinched, just ran his tongue over his teeth in thought while he watched Tanner's outburst through hooded eyes. Nah, we don't know nothing for sure. Swanson's been off every two days, since just after shit started going down. Said he was right, that it sure as shit seemed like those aliens he'd been warning us about were making a move, and the whole fucking lot of us did nothing. Well, seems like it blew up in our face. Last thing he said was he's heading somewhere safe to keep broadcasting, and he'd let us know when he'd found out more. Blake paused, sucked his teeth. We've had the TV and radio on nonstop since then, since we fired the generator up. Nothing. Lauren leant forward. There was something a couple days back. Nothing useful. Blake cut in. He spat. Same old fucking commie station, same old crap. They took over the channels, emergency broadcasting, said there was a protest. Stay inside, all under control, daddy government's here, blah blah blah. He laughed. Hell of a protest, more like an insurrection, doublespeak bullshit. So what's the plan? We hide out, lay low, wait for the military? The troops ain't coming, chief. Blake grimaced. Alien tentacles go deep. Probably strolling around in general stars by now, the politicians just handing over the keys. This president will have us kissing their feet before dinner. Nah, if we want to fight back, we can't rely on the fucking bunch of secretaries and scribes. We hole up here, wait for instructions. He laughed again. Huh, <laughs> hole up in the hole. Well, that's funny. That grin was starting to get on Tanner's nerves. Instructions from who? How long is that going to take? Who's going to fight back against this? I know some people from back in the old days. Good people. There's still patriots out there who won't give up this country without a fight. Tanner still bristled with questions, but he was starting to feel relieved. There were people in charge, and they had a plan. That was something he could work with. What if it takes weeks, months? Do we have food for that long? Blake settled further into his chair, grinned that cocky grin. 
I do. Don't know about you. Before the words were even out of his mouth, he was already raising his palms. Chill out, I'm joking. I'll put it on your tab. You're a lawyer. I know you're good for it. Show him, babe. Lauren got up and went over to a large yellow flag hanging on the concrete wall, pulling it aside to reveal a long, narrow room that ended abruptly at a large steel door. She flicked on the light. Dry storage, she said, gesturing at the shelves lining both walls. Packets of ramen, boxes of cereal, rows of whiskey, and gleaming stacks of cans stared down at Tanner. And cold storage. Lauren continued as she stepped over to the door, kicking aside two enormous tubs of supplements and pulling it open to reveal a walk-in freezer. Tanner followed her inside as she happily chatted away, showing everything off like a house-proud hen. We've got everything we need. Steaks, hot dogs, chili, hamburgers, mac and cheese, chicken parmesan, mashed potatoes, whatever you want. There's a well, too, over on the other side. We had that dug last summer. Tastes a bit funny, but it won't hurt you. Tanner was hardly listening. He had never seen anything like it, never imagined anything on the scale. Blake really had taken preparing for the end of the world seriously. The freezer room was filled, wall to wall, with a treasure trove of gourmet excess, thousands upon thousands of frozen TV dinners. Tanner stared at his microwaved salmon filet, fries drooping from his fork. Out of habit, he was eating in front of the TV with Katie, though the display hadn't changed in however many days it had been. Just the red, white, and blue logo, a tile flipping between ads for pillows, brain pills, and frozen food, and the same scrolling red banner. Breaking. The United States of America is under attack. Stand by for updates. Katie was poking at her food silently, barely eating. Still no appetite. Tanner had told her they were safe, told her he wasn't going to let anyone hurt her, told her a hundred times in different ways that she was his precious little girl and he would make sure she was okay. It had made no difference. She had just looked up at him with big, frightened eyes that pulled at Tanner's heart. The only time she had spoken in the last 24 hours was to ask why he had tried to shoot people. Of course she didn't understand. Maybe he should ask Lauren to talk to her. The TV display glitched, blipped, flicked to static, and then to black. Tanner shoveled the fries into his mouth and rubbed his eyes. He'd been staring at a blank TV for too long. He chewed and stretched, squeezing his eyes shut and trying to straighten out his aching back. Earl Swanson was on TV. Tanner blinked a few times to make sure he was seeing straight. Swanson's shirt was wrinkled, his hair a mess, and his signature bow tie slightly crooked, but his face wore that familiar expression of righteously indignant bewilderment. It was him. Blake! Blake, get in here! Swanson was in what looked like a large living room rather than his usual studio. Bookshelves and a TV cabinet were visible behind him. There were shadows under his eyes, and wrinkles were clearly visible without his usual TV makeup, but his eyes were as sharp as ever. There was a strength to them, piercing the screen, full of faith and fire. It felt like he was in the room. He looked like he'd been in a fight and won. He was back. Good evening, America, 
and welcome to Earl Swanson tonight. Blake! Blake stuck his head through the door. What? I'm working out. Give me a... No shit. Blake stepped into the room. He was topless, breathing heavily. His stomach was shiny with sweat, pooling and running down the chiseled channels between his well-defined muscles before disappearing behind the low-riding waistband of his camo pants. Tanner realized he was staring and felt his cheeks flush as he snapped his eyes back to his friends. Blake, it's... Shut up. I'm trying to listen. The rebuke slapped Tanner back to the present and back to the TV. He surreptitiously sat a little straighter and sucked in his gut, trying to ignore the heat rising in his face. Cities up and down the West Coast. From Seattle to San Diego, the alien invaders and the traitors from among our own citizens have taken control, sowing chaos and destruction. Order has broken down, and anarchy rules in the streets. Yet we hear nothing but silence from the White House. The elites in Washington won't do anything about this. They encouraged it. They caused it. Now, it is up to patriotic Americans to stop this existential threat. It is up to us, to you and me and the other patriots out there. If you value the American way of life, if you respect the principles that built the greatest nation ever imagined. If you care about your family and the future of your children, then the time has come to stand up. Your country needs you. I have been warning about this day on this very program for years. If you have been listening, you will be prepared for this betrayal. You know what to do. Find other true Americans who are ready to fight for our civilization and our culture. Defend our Western values against this attack by anarchists and aliens who wish to destroy us. They tried to take our guns from us, to disarm us, and failed. Now is the time to use them. Seek out the prepared, the militias, the heroes. Fight back. Show them that we will not allow it. I will be moving to an undisclosed safe location so I can keep you informed. You know your job. I am doing my part. Will you do yours? Swanson sat erect and defiant, no less commanding for his disheveled appearance. His willpower flowed from the screen in waves, washing over the watchers. It was compelling. It was urgent. It was the only option. The screen went black. Swanson gaze bored into Tanner long after the TV went dark, burning with righteous fire, lip-curling with fury. The heat in Tanner's cheeks sharpened, focused, and began to spread into his chest and throughout his body. There was only one thought in his mind. We gotta go. It took him a second to realize that Blake had spoken the words out loud. We do, but where? I don't know anyone like that. You know me, and I know people. Don't worry about that. We gotta go to Baker City. I talked to one of my buddies from the Marines this morning. He's headed to join one of the militias out east. They might not be big, but they're hard. They're something. Tanner looked at Blake blankly, unable to quite comprehend what he was being told. Days of no news, no action. Now everything all at once? But what's in Baker City? Don't you know anyone here? This is where we live, where we have the whole 
where we have a safe base. Blake was clearly agitated, shifting from foot to foot. It's not safe. Weren't you listening? It's fallen. The military ain't doing jack like I fucking told you they wouldn't. Blake stopped bouncing and steadied himself. But my buddy said the boys and Baker held out. It was bloody, but they held strong. If we can get there in a hurry, we can join the caravan headed for Boise. Baker? Boise? What the Boise? Surely it's safer in Texas or, or Texas? And how far away is that? Look, I don't know nothing about nothing, but I know I ain't looking for safer. All I know is I got buddies in Baker, and they say Boise, and they are the fucking resistance. We got our orders, soldier. The West had been invaded, destroyed, gone. You heard Swanson same as me. Grids are down, water's down, TV's down, mostly anyway. Skies half full of fire and smoke, gangs roaming the streets, traitors and aliens taking or breaking whatever they can get their thieving hands on. Tears came to Blake's eyes. It's a fucking mess out there, buddy. Anarchy. They've burned the lot. It was a lot to chew on. Tanner put a piece of salmon in his mouth. I'm not gonna let some filthy aliens take my home, fuck my wife, invade my country, and steal a goddamn U.S. of A. The fight is right there, and I'm gonna fight it. Are you? Tanner's brain was spinning, but his blood was still hot from Swanson's speech. Blake's fire, delivered standing there half-naked like a Steven Seagal action figure, was rousing something inside him. His country needed him, and he felt the call in his bones. He put down his fork. He swallowed. He rose. Of course I'll fight. I'll put a bullet in every alien who steps foot on American soil. I'll put every collaborator in the dirt. He saw himself next to Blake, riding shotgun as they made a fighting escape through the streets. He saw a heroic journey to Baker City, filled with danger and righteous violence. He saw a triumphant return at the head of an army, cleansing his city with purifying flame. And he saw Katie, small and fragile and beautiful, perfect and terrified. The flame wavered. But I'm fighting for her, Tanner gestured. I got my little girl, and I'm not so red hot on riding out guns blazing to meet these savages with her hanging off my arm. She's the future of this country, and that's a future we have to protect. To Tanner's surprise, Blake took half a step back. Shit. I know, man. Katie and Lauren, the innocent and the pure, I'm thinking of them, too. He dropped his shoulders, but held Tanner's gaze. But it's not safe for them here, neither. We're on our own, and all hell has broken loose up top. We fight for them, and they are the reason. We have to fight. Tanner paused, then nodded. He reached out and placed his hand on his friend's shoulder, fingers gripping the sweaty skin. Let's go pack the truck. As the sun set and twilight brought a low fog creeping across the city, they piled into the Tacoma with as many frozen dinners as they could carry. Tanner rode in the back. Lauren was up front, AR at the ready, while Blake drove, M1A by his side and his Glock taped to the dash. Katie was at Tanner's side, curled up below the window and hidden from view, and Tanner watched over her with his own Glock and a borrowed Remington 870. They were all a little jumpy. 
He and Lauren had wanted to maintain a shoot-on-site policy. Blake had been more cautious. According to Swanson, there would be plenty of people collaborating with the aliens. Lights out, engine low, and hopefully they could slip right on by. No one knew what to expect. Tanner suspected they were all terrified. He certainly was. Even Blake had swapped out his flag bandana for a more understated camo print. He had stashed the red, white, and blue fabric in the bed of the truck with the rest of their gear. They pulled out onto the streets Tanner knew, but didn't. He had driven them every day, on the way to work, to Katie's school, to church, to the mall. The streets were as familiar as an old Coke, yet now, in some important way, they were different. As they left the hole and drove through the suburb, he couldn't quite put his finger on it. But once Blake reached the main street and turned past the bars and shops and takeout joints, it hit him. The streets were dead. The cars were gone. The steady flow of traffic, of people living their lives, had stopped. The parking lot in front of the drugstore was empty. So was the one behind the bar. The convenience store, normally ticking over with a steady stream of customers buying cigarettes and beer, was dark behind its windows. Unintelligible graffiti in some alien script covered the ads for energy drinks, an expression of mindless violence across someone's hard work. A light rain had started, misting around them and adding to the dreariness. A billboard loomed overhead, the lights that illuminated the Colgate-bright smiles of the models now permanently dark. Tanner was glad. The gloom obscured the flame-scarred destruction, streaking the toothpaste company's perfect white message. Disgusting, Blake spat. He looked like he wanted to say more, but pulled up short, shocked at the sudden sound of his own voice. His eyes focused back on the road and he fell into uneasy silence. The truck continued its crawl down the deserted street, barely clocking 20 miles an hour. Even at that speed, the low growl of the engine seemed unbearably loud as it reverberated among the carcasses of commerce and ricocheted down abandoned side streets. They kept driving and nothing kept happening. It was torturous. Every minute of unbroken inactivity twisted the crank on the tension in the car until the unceasing hum of the engine began to seep into Tanner's brain. Every muscle in his arms and legs, primed and waiting and ready to spring, began to tremble, and his eyes focused and unfocused on nothing at all. His frantic heartbeat messed with his breathing, a powerful panicked thud that matched the rumble of the pistons. Overall, he was relieved when the road curved and they entered a strip of restaurants to see signs of life among the debris littered across the street in the distance. It wasn't immediately clear through the gloom what was happening. Blake slowed the truck, now rolling along at barely more than a walking pace, and they crept closer. The scene was illuminated by the flickering light of small fires and backlit by a pair of enormous floodlights creating a glowing aura in the surrounding mist. Images began to resolve, ghostly figures flitting in and out of view, and the harsh geometric shapes, not of debris, but of hastily manufactured barricades, throwing long shadows that lanced through the air around them as they approached. 
All eyes were fixed on the barricades as they pulled within shouting distance. And Tanner nearly pissed himself when someone knocked on the window. He yelped, Blake swore, and Lauren's weapon x-rayed Tanner's head and pointed at the intruder. Tanner followed her lead and jerked his gun up to aim in the general direction of the window, and for 10, 20 heartbeats, nothing moved. Then another knock, and Blake hissed at them. Put those things away, you idiots. We're the good guys here. Whatever side that guy is on, so are we. Whatever side that guy is on, so are we. Okay. Put those things away, you idiots. We're the good guys here. Whatever side that guy is on, so are we. Tanner slowly lowered the gun, then the window. Hey folks, no cars through here. The man was clad head to toe in black. Black jeans, black hoodie, black gloves, black bandana covering his face, black curly hair running with rainwater. No wonder they hadn't seen him. The stranger spotted their guns. Oh, nothing like that, he added, catching the nervous energy in the truck. You're a bit late to the party. No trouble around here. This area has been cleared out for days. He chuckled, sending a shiver through Tanner. Some folks messed up the cop shop a while back. It was a bit of a fight. Streets were all blocked up anyway, so we set up a little kitchen here. Been feeding some folks. Symbolic like new world and the ruin of old and all that. The smile fell from his face as he took in the scene in the truck. Everything all right? Is she okay? He gestured at Katie, curled up and quivering silently beside Tanner. Tanner opened his mouth to respond, but Blake was quicker. Sure, probably just spooked by that fucking mask. Look, we don't mean to bother you people, just heading east, trying to cross the river. We'll go around you and your little kitchen. If the man took issue with Blake's tone, it didn't show. Bridge is a no-go, I'm afraid. Pigs blew the cables as they pulled out. Some of it collapsed. It's way too unstable to cross. He scratched his temple. What do you want out that way anyway? There's dangerous people out there. Not exactly safe for families. We're heading for a Hood River, Tanner spoke up. Taking supplies out to the girl's grandparents. Indians, Blake chimed in. They need the help. He winked at Tanner. The stranger turned to Blake and met his eyes, holding his gaze for an unnerving moment. Then he seemed to resolve some internal discussion, relaxing his shoulders. Well, you might be able to get across up St. John's. Last I heard, the bridge was still intact. There's some folks in the park up there. You can ask them. St. John's, that's the wrong fucking way. A bridge is a bridge. It's that or swim, champ. Can you at least call the, the, your boss? Tell him you checked us out. Ask if we can get across. The man smiled, but something hardened behind his eyes. My boss. Sure, sure. Look, I think it's time you moved on. Hit on up there and tell them what you told me. They'll let you out. There's a bunch of poor Indians waiting for their dinner. There was something strange about the way the man said Indians, but he patted the hood of the truck and turned away, waving them down a side street away from the barricade. As Blake slowly drove off, Tanner collapsed back into his seat and quickly rolled up the window. His underarms were cold with sweat, 
and he relaxed muscles he hadn't known were clenched. Blake took the turn the stranger indicated, muttering that if he heard anyone say folks again, he would hit them. Tanner stared out the window at the little kitchen as they passed. There must have been a couple hundred people, milling around a dozen or so small fires. They were all loosely centered around a large tent directly in front of the scorched skeleton of the precinct. Laughter and music drifted through the open window, and Tanner closed it. He didn't think he could see any aliens, but it was difficult to tell in the dark. Collaborators. Must be a ration station or something, he muttered, mostly to himself. Lauren heard him. No, this has been going on much longer than that. It just wasn't so out in the open. Swanson warned us about it. He said they lure hungry people in with food. Yeah, cut in Blake. This is how they recruit them. Set up a kitchen, give them food. Homeless and crackheads and queers, mostly. Drugs, too, probably, and spewing their propaganda. That guy was probably one of the junkies. Sure as shit looked like it. You see the way he stared at me? Tanner shuddered. A junkie? He had an overwhelming urge to wash his hands. He remembered the way the man had talked about the police station, his manic laugh in the face of such a violence, and glanced back at the quickly fading light, and saw a small figure tottering at the edge of the firelight. A child. Disgusting, he said out loud. Yeah, disgusting. It's like Earl said, Blake continued. They've been feeding people right under our fucking noses. They drove on toward the bridge. The streets were more cluttered here, both with people and the remnants of the riots, and they could only manage a slow pace as they picked their way through the destruction. Blake had to swerve to the wrong side of the road to avoid a group of people carrying trash bags, picking through the rubble. Looking for something to eat, he grunted and locked the doors. Signs of violence were everywhere. Tanner's chest tightened as they drove past the law firm where he had started his career, the job that had brought him to the city after he finished college, working for his father's best friend and learning his profession. Inside the shattered windows, it was nothing but a shell. The desks overturned and the computers gone. No one would be working there anymore. The destruction was completely random, violence for its own sake. Besides the firm was a pawn shop, covered in graffiti and looted. Next to that, a Vietnamese restaurant, completely unharmed except for delicious five stars, sprayed on the pavement outside. Across the road was an untouched convenience store and a bookshop with its doors wide open, light flooding out and people crowding the entrance. A donut shop and an apple store destroyed, a mechanic and a bar looking like they had simply closed for the night. There was absolutely no pattern or reason to it. They saw Fred Myers with every window broken, the front door jammed open with a twisted shopping cart. A movement caught Tanner's eye and he saw someone leaving from a side door, carrying a huge bag of stolen food. He hoped Blake didn't see. He might do something stupid and Tanner didn't want to stop. It wasn't safe. They made it a few more blocks when Lauren gasped and grabbed Blake's arm, making him break. She gestured across the intersection to a KFC. Half the building had collapsed in what must have been an enormous fire, 
the half that still stood had been savagely attacked. She pointed to the entrance with a shaking finger. Someone, or something, had toppled the giant bucket sign and sent it crashing through the ceiling of the kitchen. Above the door, someone had scrawled a message in red spray paint. Fuck you, Sanders. Our secret spices now. There were more barricades set up near the bridge. Where the others had been makeshift, marking a boundary, these were more serious. They were to stop people getting through. Blake slowed before they got too close to the blockade, which they could now see was lined by shapes that very much suggested people. On both sides of the road, the land fell away into darkness, sloping down to become a park that ran beneath the bridge. The park itself, a rare green space normally dotted with dog walkers and children, was transformed. The once quiet lawns were a mass of tents and makeshift structures, stages and bars and sound systems, the proud trees now decked out with effigies and lights. Fires burned everywhere, and the distant space was carpeted with a swarming mass of humanity, undulating to a throbbing cacophony of noise. This doesn't look good, said Blake. He pulled over, a hundred yards or so short of the bridge. The guy said they would let us through, said Tanner, if we stick to our story. He was a junkie, scoffed Lauren. But he thought we were working with them, said Tanner. He had no reason to lie to us. I guess it's worth a try. Anyway, they ain't gonna try anything against this much firepower, Blake grunted. Too late to change your minds now. They've seen us. He nodded at the barricade where two shapes had detached from the mass. They moved toward the Tacoma, and Blake responded by flicking the lights to high beam and heading to meet them. As Blake swung back out into the road, the beams cut through the darkness to illuminate the figures, throwing wild shadows from the two shapes until the truck steadied course, and they coalesced into recognizable forms. One was a large man, white, with a nose ring and a loosely tied blonde ponytail. He was wearing a plaid shirt and carrying a large rifle. The other, Tanner's throat caught, the other looked like one of the aliens. Shit, said Blake. As the headlights picked out at least half a dozen more shapes along the barricade, several with big guns visible. Fuck. He stopped the truck and rolled down the window, then cursed again and threw open the door. I'll be fucked if I'm going to sit here and be pulled over like some criminal. Tanner, you're with me. Let's go meet them, man to man. Tanner scrabbled for the door handle and chased after Blake, half skipping to catch up. They pulled up a few paces before colliding with the approaching party. The blonde man stepped forward. How's it going, dude? He said. We need to get to Hood River, said Blake. We're trying. Yeah, we heard. The man cut him off. Bridge is closed to traffic, unfortunately. You want to cross? You'll have to walk. Blake bristled. Are you joking? We need to bring all this stuff. It's important, he objected. You can't just keep people here. We could, said the blonde man calmly. He sounded confident in his assertion. Looking at the line of men and women, Tanner realized, standing along the barricade, he agreed. But we're not, the man continued. 
you can go wherever you want. Take your shit, cross the bridge. Some folks have organized up the river. They'll take you. But the truck stays. But that's my fucking truck, Blake squealed. The man's eyebrows shot up, and Tanner laid a hand on Blake's shoulder, squeezing it and hoping he got the message. The stranger paused, then sighed. Look, I'm sorry, dude. I love my truck, too. But there was an attack at another camp last night by these so-called freedom fighters, he grimaced. Militia whack jobs, really. Word is they're gathering across the river, and we can't risk weapons and vehicles falling into the wrong hands. Especially not an arsenal like you folk got here. The alien stepped forward and, much to Tanner's surprise, spoke in perfect American English. Don't worry. It'll be here when you get back. We'll take real good care of it for you. They will appreciate the help guarding the buses, and I'm sure they'll be more than happy to help you move these important supplies. They signaled to the group at the barricade, and two more figures made their way into the light of the truck's high beams. The first was a slim black man in fatigues, wearing a red beret at a jaunty angle and carrying an AR-style rifle in one hand. The other was a woman, tall and imposing. She wore a leather jacket over a long black dress, which was slit to the thigh to reveal hints of slim bare legs that stretched from the pavement to the heavens. Tanner blinked rapidly and swallowed. He had always had a soft spot for long legs and thigh-slit dresses. As they came closer, the man nodded at Tanner and Blake, but he was not what held their attention. The woman with the legs from God was also rocking a luxurious mustache that would have put Teddy Roosevelt to shame. As Tanner's eyes bulged, she caught his gaze and winked. Hello, boys. I'm Sunshine, they them. I'll be with you on the bus. Tanner didn't know how to react. A fuzzy memory bounced around in the back of his head. An investigation on college campuses found that increasing numbers of American citizens are using pronouns. Earl's bewildered face frowned, then puckered. These, theys, and thems are making a mockery of the American tradition, seeking to spread their insidious ideology among good, hard-working citizens, brainwashing young Americans into adopting these pronouns. What's next? People identifying a different age? A different race? We need to speak out against this perverse trend and, most importantly, keep them away from our children. That was it. These were the pronouns Swanson had warned them about. He gripped his gun and glanced at Blake, trying to get his mental footing. Blake looked shocked, too, but he quickly pulled himself together. He threw Tanner a sly look, one that hinted at an idea. Give us a minute, he snapped, and pulled away from Tanner, back to the truck. When they were both inside, he turned on the occupants with a spark in his eyes. They must be talking about my boys, alive and kicking. The old grin was back, his excitement barely contained. Must have set up in the woods. We'll head over and find them. Maybe they got word from Earl. If they're here and they're fighting, maybe we don't have to go all the way to Boise after all. What's going on? Lauren looked confused. 
We're leaving the truck, grab the shit, cross the bridge, hijack their fucking commie wagon, and strike out east. Either we find them in Baker, or our boys find us first. Tanner was still coming to grips with the situation. What about them? He said. Who? They. Them. In the dress with the pronouns. And what are they gonna do? Stop us? You ever tried to fight wearing something like that? No. Four of us across the bridge, grab the bus. Easy. Katie's not hijacking any bus. She's eight, for God's sake. Maybe she and Lauren should stay here. You stay here with Katie, Lauren snapped, cutting Tanner off. If you think it's safer, if you're looking for safer, you take her for a nice walk in the park down there. I'll be with my husband, taking my country back from these freaks. I know you want to keep Katie safe, Blake said, almost apologetically. But you saw what it's like out there. You heard Swanson's warnings. These aren't people, they're animals, aliens. She's your baby fucking girl, man. You do what you're at peace with, but my wife sure as shit ain't staying here to get felt up by some dick in a dress. Tanner looked at Lauren. But she's just a kid. What if she gets hurt? What if she gets hurt here? So you look after her. Be a man. Lauren spat back. Blake clapped Tanner on the shoulder and held his gaze. It's do or die time, soldier. Let's get the fuck out of here, hook up with the resistance, then bring back the fury of God and freedom and the USA to take back the city and liberate my goddamn truck. Tanner looked at Katie, curled up in the footwell, and wanted to object. He wanted to take her somewhere safe, back to the hole, where it was warm and they could hide from the aliens and the bad people, and they had all the food they could need and they could wait for all this to be over. But the fire in his belly wouldn't let him. He knew Blake was right. He knew that he should be ashamed of his moments of weakness. He saw Lauren gripping her rifle and staring at Blake with faith and devotion in her eyes, and he knew that was the kind of man he wanted to be. Tanner breathed a silent promise to keep Katie safe no matter the cost. Let's do it. Blake pulled the truck up to the group of guards and they all piled out, Tanner standing straight and feeling tall, Blake's words ringing in his ears. It's do or die time. Two of the barricade guards came over to help them unload, while the others stood around and watched. Their mustachioed escort who made Tanner's skin crawl and the large blonde man. Traitor. They stripped off the tray covering and began shifting gear, Blake and Blondie up above handing packages down to everyone else. Tanner heard the guards muttering to each other. Holy shit, that's a lot of firepower. The blonde man snorted. And a lot of nasty-ass TV dinners. Important supplies, my ass. Sunshine shrugged. Folk eat what they eat. Not everyone lives in a Whole Foods and learned to make Tom Yum on their gap year. They rebuked him. The man grimaced and scratched his jaw. Yeah, right. That wasn't fair of me. Well, Thai cooking workshop tomorrow. And I'll make a big pot. So at least folks here don't have to eat that frozen stuff unless they want to they busied themselves unloading bundling food and weapons into bags or tying them together for ease of carrying 
Tanner was tying the straps of his backpack and settling it on his back when he heard a curse from the back of the truck. He glanced up and, frozen in time, watched the next few seconds helplessly. The blonde man had pulled out one of the last few satchels, the one containing all their spare clothes. He was standing upright, arms held out, nose ring quivering in silent outrage. <laughs> Sorry. Nose ring quivering in silent outrage. In his left hand, he had Blake's flag bandana. In his right, Blake's spare jacket, rebel flag patch sitting proudly on the shoulder. Blake reacted fastest. He dropped the food he was holding, raised his glock, and with a vengeful crack, the blonde ponytail exploded in a spray of red. The man in the beret raised his rifle and fired two shots into Blake's chest, sending him flying from the tray. A scream burst from Lauren as she reached for her gun, but the alien matched the sound and met her with a powerful tackle, sending both of them crashing into a pile of frozen hamburgers. Sunshine reached out and grabbed Tanner's arm. Time snapped back into motion for Tanner. He instinctively pulled away and shook his arm free of the grasping fingers. Stepping back, he spun and swung his fist in a wild roundhouse. It connected with Sunshine's jaw as they overbalanced toward him. Tanner watched them collapse in a heap. His gaze danced over the chaos unfolding around him, frantically searching for Katie. There, Tanner picked her up and ran. They plunged off the road and into the darkness. There was only one thought in his mind. Get Katie across that bridge. She was sobbing, shaking in his grasp, and Tanner made what he hoped were comforting shushing noises as he ran. He knew this park. There was a staircase inside one of the support towers that rose from the park to the bridge overhead. That was his way out. Holding Katie tightly, breath ragged, he ran toward the orgy of light and noise pulsating below. The two escapees burst into the mass of people. Tanner looked around, eyes darting, taking in the madness and trying to get his bearings. The sensory assault was overwhelming, but he slowly made out patterns in the polyrhythmic press. What had looked from above like a continuous swell of humanity was actually a hundred, a thousand separate groups and camps and parties. People flowed freely between them, groups forming and merging and coming apart in a chaotic, ever-changing anarchy. A makeshift stage to his left throbbed with bass, colliding with the bone-jarring screams and guitars of a group of punks. Tanner found himself surrounded by ecstatic dancers, while a group almost under his feet sat staring into a campfire, oblivious to the rest of the world. He crashed through their doped-out reverie and bounced off two men, locked in a hungry embrace. Tanner recoiled and turned away, shielding Katie with his body, searching desperately for the tower that would lead him out of this nightmare. Lights flashed, blinding, creating a sort of slideshow of horror as Tanner scanned the crowd. There, he found it. His escape from this festival of the damned. He soldiered on, caught up in a whirl of half-naked dancers, men, women, and everyone else, mindless of the frigid air as they span and writhed in rapture. Tanner spotted an exit, an island of calm, and dove for it. He exploded from the throng, gasping for air, and breathed in the relative silence. 
Collecting himself, he was faced with rows of bodies, still, staring at something unseen up ahead, the very air trembling with collective anticipation. A voice shattered his uneasy reprieve, loud and bombastic and dripping with drama. And now, my darlings, it is time for these fuckers to do what I do best. Go down. Tanner dashed through the crowd as they roared and surged into motion and caught a glimpse of the scene ahead. Two lines of people straining on thick ropes as a woman in lingerie and feathers pranced like a princess of hell before them. The ropes led upwards, where they were tied around the necks of two enormous metal figures, Lewis and Clark. Tanner broke into a full sprint, shouldering bodies aside. He was almost there. Up ahead, rising from the chaos, was his stairway to the heavens. His legs trembled and his breath came in ragged sobs, but he couldn't slow down, not when he was so close. He tore out of the crowd and into the comforting darkness of the spaces in between. His hysterical panic began to subside. One foot in front of the other, keep running, they were going to make it. As he neared the tower, a figure came into view at the base, looming from the shadows of the doorway, staring into the blackness beyond. A stocky, muscled figure wearing fatigues and a plate carrier. It couldn't be. Blake! Blake, thank God! Tears welled in Tanner's eyes as he reached his friend. Lauren was nowhere to be seen, but right now Tanner couldn't think about her. He had survived, and he had brought Katie through. His heartbeat was still frantic, but from exertion rather than fear. They were here, he, Katie, and Blake. Emotionally exhausted, physically spent, battered and terrified, but alive. They were going to be okay. He reached out to his friend. Blake turned. No, not Blake. A thick black beard engulfed the shadowy face momentarily lit by the glowing ember of a huge cigar. The eyes were deep-set and dark, the skin weathered, wrinkled, brown. The face of an illegal alien. Tanner's throat betrayed him. He squeaked and nothing more would come out. His knees wobbled and threatened to give way. His feet froze in place. He wavered. He whimpered. Puffing on the cigar, the alien took in his terrified face, and the little girl slung over his shoulder. He gestured toward the doorway and blew out an enormous plume of smoke. Go, gringo. It was well past midnight when Katie ran into the side of a tent, fell on her bottom, and started crying. They had crossed the bridge, left the highway, and headed for the safety of the forest. Since then, they had been wandering among the trees for hours, directionless, driven by fear, then by hope, then exhausted aimlessness. Tanner wasn't going anywhere except away from that park. He had briefly entertained the image of finding a group of militia, sitting around a fire, eating and laughing, and maybe swapping stories with their old friend Blake. That was hours ago. Visions were fleeting in the fever dream of the forest. Since then, they had walked because they didn't know what else to do. Tanner stumbled over to Katie and collapsed beside her, holding her close and hushing her. 
He felt like crying too. A flashlight clicked on inside the tent and a dreadlocked head poked out of the flap. Hey, there's someone here. Rustling erupted from all around and more faces appeared. Wasn't someone keeping watch? I thought you were. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter, someone's crying. You folks okay? Tanner and Katie were soon surrounded by a small group of people. He looked up at them. Are you the militia? No, don't worry, you're safe here. We're friends. Although I guess we are militia, if you think about it, sort of. Shh, don't confuse the poor people, they're terrified. Sorry, no, no militia. Someone get them a blanket and something to drink. Minutes later, Tanner and Katie were wrapped in sleeping bags, sipping on hot cocoa. It was scalding and familiar, and Tanner felt the tension of the past day fading, leaving bone-deep exhaustion in its place. Are you okay? What happened? Thank you. We were... We just need to sleep. And you? What's your name? Are you alright? Katie looked at her dad, then stared up from her tin mug. I'm Katie. I'm scared. You're safe now. We'll help you. Look, we'll get you somewhere to sleep. The first face they had seen rummaged around in a tent and brought out a bag. Lucky we have a spare tent. I'll just put it up. Won't be a second. The tent was almost up by the time Tanner and Katie finished their drinks, and they got up and walked over, sleeping bags over their shoulders, holding hands. Hey, thanks, Tanner said. I would have helped, but I don't really know how. Never had much call for camping. I am, uh, was a lawyer. He glanced around. Not criminal, uh, intellectual property. Copyright? No problem, of course. Here, it's nothing hard. I'm just flipping the... This isn't the time for camping lessons, Jacob. Anyway, you'll scare the man sharing information for free like that. They've been through enough already. Sorry, yeah. Look, slide in. Take these sleeping mats. It'll do for tonight. I'll teach you tomorrow. Tanner and Katie squeezed into the tent. Sleeping bags huddled together on the cold, hard ground and slept. Hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, could you introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and just a little bit about what you do in the world? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Matt, he, him pronouns, and I'm a student again after a really long time, actually, which is why I've just moved to where I'm living now. Uh, but I like to write, you know, mostly for me, and this is the first first thing I've published, but uh, I enjoy it. And yeah, I'm really grateful that you've taken an interest in it. Yeah, totally. I love the story. Um, so we just listened to the second half of your story, um, Blood Soil and Frozen TV Dinners. And even though listeners just just heard, just heard the whole story, um, I'm wondering if you could just kind of like walk us through the story and your, you know, from the, the mouth of the author, like what is, what is this story about? 
So the story for me was about um, to some extent seeing yourself in some ways or, you know, people like you through the eyes of, uh, through the eyes of someone else, I guess, someone who's very different and might see things in a different way. So I always find it interesting to play with different perspectives or different characters um, instead of telling the story from a heroic perspective or something. And I wondered what a pathway to a better world might look like from someone who didn't necessarily want that to happen. So we have these, you know, preppers and uh, call them what you want, right-wing conservatives, something like this, um, and what they might think given the, the knowledge that they receive about the world, what they might think is happening um, mm-hmm. when something happens that a lot of the rest of us might want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I really like how you put that. What was it? Like the um, a better world that they don't necessarily want. <laughs> um. Okay, well, how how did this, how did the story kind of like how did it come to be? Like what was like what inspiration did you kind of like draw from to like craft this situation or like the these like personalities from like Tanner and Blake and or like Earl Swanson? Yeah, I mean, the story itself um there was a discussion last Halloween, I believe it was, on Coffee with Comrades, there was a interview with uh, Pearson and Margaret Kiljoy talking about um, the discussion of the monster in literature, uh, mm-hmm. which is where I first took the idea of, um, they were talking about seeing yourself as the monster in this idea uh, and sometimes reveling in that or perhaps enjoying it. And that was where the, the first idea came from. Um, and then the more specific uh, layout of the story or main theme i guess was i was doing some something on the u.s tax office website and there's this whole section for aliens right if if you're an alien in the u.s these are the tax rules you need to follow and i just i thought it was a funny word you know i'd seen it on fox news or something before but it would just struck me as really weird in such an official position (laughs) um yeah, and I just was playing with the ideas of this and, you know, I like thinking about utopias and things and this is where the, like, the main shape of the story had come from. Just the idea of seeing the monster, seeing the alien from there and then the specific characters, I mean, some of them are just kind of people that I've met, you know, <laughs> Tanner yeah. and Blake yeah. specifically. And I think El Swanson's character, I mean, I don't know, it's possibly libelous, but we can probably figure out who that's meant to be, right? I think it's like reasonably obvious. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's super interesting. Yeah, um, it's funny. Like I was rereading the story today to prepare for this interview and um, I realized that like the first time that, for the first time that I was reading it um, because of this perspective of like, I'm like okay like I know these I know these are like some you know at least center right far right like uh like preppers and they're using the word alien and I'm like I don't actually know what they mean by this which was like you know maybe like a purposeful like like uh being vague about it but I was like I don't know if they think that it's like you know like 
illegal aliens or like people like undocumented like migrants or like whatever or if they mean like literal from outer space aliens and yeah (laughs) i was like i don't know what they mean (laughs) by what they're talking about (laughs) this was the part of maybe they don't either this is part of the conceit right it was setting it up like it's a pretend big reveal i think um Mm -hmm. that it's it's a, a twist in the story that at some point gets revealed, but that's not really the point. It's not really meant to be a big trick or something like this. You know, I think Literally. in discussions about the, in the editing, like it's, we talked about in the first page or so when they speak in Arabic and it's like reasonably obvious to anyone that knows Arabic who these people are, you know, it's, it's, it's not hidden, Literally. but this was uh, the idea of um, that they may have meant illegal alien all along. Uh, was you know the way they were using the term but that they weren't necessarily drawing so much of a distinction between the two uses of the word alien that in their minds sort of invasion by one was the same as the invasion by the other uh, to some extent so yeah which you know it's like i i actually really love that from the perspective of like um it's like maybe an interesting twist. I, I didn't listen to that that interview with them um, with Pearson and Margaret. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what they talked about. But like, there's this kind of idea in a lot of spaces that I've been part of of like you, you know like with when people talk about like things like assimilation or something like especially in like queer spaces of like we have to seem like harmless to them. We have to seem like innocent we have to seem like we're just want to be part of the 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 group you know and then this other side that's like no we want to be unknowable we are claiming the monstrosity that they are putting on us and i'm like yeah we're fucking i don't know anarchists kind of aliens (laughs) like in having this like entirely other way of thinking you know yeah yeah and just considering uh, some social norms is completely irrelevant or harmful or repressive and other things that other people would consider perhaps violent or something seem completely okay to other people. You know, <laughs> There is a complete sort of, um, I don't know, alienation of perspective from broader society, I think. And yeah, it is, there is a, a tension between sometimes wanting to go unnoticed or uh, as you say, like assimilate and, even for me walking around, you know, sometimes you want to look like an anarchist and sometimes you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting um, dynamic, I guess, that you can switch sometimes day to day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you read much of, um, uh, you know, love talking about this person on, on the show. Um, have you, have you read much of like Ursula Gwynn's like Hainish cycle? Um, I've read only *Dispossessed* and *Left Hand of Darkness* by Le Guin. Cool. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great, great examples. Um, to, and I, I think like it's like the *Left Hand of Darkness* like kind of brings out this idea of like where the you know the reader is going to maybe most identify with like the um you know the alien or whatever in um in the left hand of darkness being like, not the, not the, the Gethins or what, I don't remember what they're called. Um, and, but then it's like the more, the more that we're like reading the book or it's like, there's some times where I'm like, like this, this, this alien or like, you know, our perspective person just like, doesn't understand this culture. And that's like really painful. And then there's like other times when I'm like, 
I don't know, maybe maybe the alien perspectives on like the world are like far more dissimilar to like what like a normal person on like our planet Earth would think because they're like advocating for like a better world that is very alien to people on this planet. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, in Dispossessed, I think it's the same dynamic, right? With Shevet coming back to Earth and presenting the the perspective, um, both ways that it seems incredibly alien to him, and then the other way around to everyone else that's that's there to the general culture there. But yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting like literary device to to present the outsider point of view. I think which. I mean, it's completely opposite what I did in this story, presented the uh, more mainstream point of view, I guess. But from the circles that we're in, it's <laughs> it's funny to see uh, from the outside what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. I, I had this I had this very silly idea once for like a, a I don't know if it was going to be like a short story or what, but um, but kind of like using that kind of like alien trope or like stranger in a strange land trope as like a like way to talk to my parents about like anarchism or about like radical <laughs> queer spheres <laughs> yeah i mean that's about as alien as it can get a lot of people's parents right totally totally <laughs> but just as like some funny like like a little like zine that's like <laughs> yeah yeah um, helping <laughs> an introduction to the punk house you know, know. <laughs> yeah viewed as some idea. sort of interesting zoo creatures <laughs> yeah um i was wondering if you could talk talk a little bit about like the kind of like political renderings of like tanner and blake or like rather like their differences in like how they they perceive or interact with either like preparedness or this like new world that they're encountering yeah i think the blake's character is a lot he knows what he's doing right it's a lot more intentional um and more i guess educated is maybe not quite the right word but uh yeah a lot more of a actually constructed ideology whereas for tanner it's very much received he's not uh so keen not so entirely sold on the idea or doesn't necessarily know the idea it feels like he's like lost and flailing a lot of the time and i think that's why i found him the much more interesting character because it's how i feel a lot of people that i know and talk to family members and friends and things or friends of people i know get pulled into a lot of these um you know reactionary ideologies is kind of by accident a lot of the time, right? Because it's what's presented and what they're drawn into by someone who has a lot more um, investment in it than they do. And they just kind of bumble into it almost by accident. Yeah, because it's like what they're seeing on TV. It's like what like more uh, like driven kind of people are like deeper into that philosophy or like it's like the people that they're around and it's like who are like the their own little like echo chambers of like oh okay there's this thing happening I'm not sure how i feel about it but i'm being like fed this perspective on it yeah and a lot of the social um or you know interpersonal issues that draw people in as well i think i mean i tried to make it <laughs> seem relatively obvious that um 
Tanner is envious of Blake in a lot of ways, right? He's, you know, hotter than him and he's cooler than him and he knows more than him and he's always trying to like live up to this ideal that he has just completely interpersonally with no politics or anything in in it and he just wants to live up to what he thinks Blake wants him to be, which it turns out is a bad thing. I mean, I'm not trying to excuse Tanner's character too much here, but... um, Totally. Yeah, that I think this is like what's really dangerous a lot of the time, actually. Um, yeah, for for people who don't necessarily have a fully formed belief in a lot of these um, philosophical systems or something, that that puts them on the wrong side, not by not necessarily out of evil intention. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very true. And like, um, yeah, it's interesting, like not saying like talking about like not excusing Tanner's character um, like too much. But like, as I was reading the story, I t- it's like I found myself like not necessarily like not not like rooting for like their like them to like Tanner and Blake to win or whatever, but like rooting for Tanner to be confronted with the contradictions in like his worldview and because it's like i don't know it's like that's that's like what i that's like what i hope for in the world that we live in is that like that these kind of i I heard this phrase recently um it with people talking about like um everything going on in palestine right now and like these like sharpening contradictions and that's kind of it's like that's what i that's what i hoped that would happen for tanner which not really what happened for Tanner, but like. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sorry to let you down, I guess. Uh, that was, <laughs> at the, when I was thinking about the story initially, I was thinking about doing this, but then it became, became kind of a, um, I don't know, a redemption story. Everything ends, well, he gets pulled out of this destructive ideology. He, you know, potentially reconciles some of these uh, contradictions and, you know, maybe even like talks to his daughter or something. Um, but I didn't necessarily want it to go in that direction because it's not necessarily the way I see the world going, that that these things just get better and everything's okay in the end. And I don't always like stories where that happens. You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, a bit too optimistic for me sometimes, and I thought it was maybe more interesting just to sit in it. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, I appreciate how the story ended, and, like, I think that is you know that is unfortunately like probably like a more likely outcome for most people and that like you know that that is a hard reality to switch to to sit with um because (laughs) i'm not i'm not like an optimist as much as i'm like just really holding on to hope or something i don't know you know i'm i'm a hopeful hopeful nihilist or something (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be to be hopeful. I mean, I'm quite happy to call myself a, a, a utopian, maybe a pessimistic utopianist or something like this. But uh, <laughs> I think these things are important. And, you know, I tried to leave like a little seed of that in there with, you know, there, if there's one thing that does redeem Tanner's character in some way, it's his uh, poorly expressed but deep care for Katie. And yeah. we tried to end it on that, right? 
Yeah, totally. And it's like, I feel like for, and maybe I'm experiencing these like political ideologies wrong, but like Tanner is like this kind of center right kind of character. And, um, in the in the in the American perspective, I know I know other places <laughs> these things mean vastly different things. Um, but like how Americans might view Tanner as like this like center right um, who like you know it's like Tanner's fear or like the core fear of like for a lot of people is like reasonable things where they're like oh I'm worried about my kids I'm worried about surviving with my family in these situations. But then, you know, they go about it in the most horribly wrong way. Yeah, and they take the easy options that are given to them that don't make them think too much. I mean, I just just on the point of him being center right in the US, uh, here in Portugal, uh, a friend was telling me the other day that they consider their socialist party center right. So it's kind of funny. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think Tana, he represents someone who's maybe like not even so political but he's just been given explanation to things that he is worried about and it doesn't require him to think too much and he doesn't have to do so much i mean okay well in the position he's presented in in the story a lot of stuff's happened but ideologically he hasn't had to do too much work right to get to where he was totally totally and (laughs) golly i'm sorry my my last like uh having empathized a little too much with with tanner throughout the story um bit is um like the <laughs> i think this is the quotation these were the pronouns swanson had warned us about and <laughs> and it's like it's like, like when tanner like attempts to use sunshine's pronouns <laughs> i was like okay yeah you're like you're like a little wacky and like i don't you're trying i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean okay i was i was not sure about this you know we talked about um being a bit concerned about how this story would be (laughs) would be received um because it's through this strange perspective uh and oh i genuinely wasn't sure if this was kind of funny or weird or like a little um yeah, a little offensive or something, perhaps. Um, but you know, it's important to to acknowledge that this is at least like such a amazingly popular topic at the moment in the US uh, on the <laughs> on the reactionary right. I think so. Totally, totally. Um, well, I don't know. You know, at least as someone who like like I'm non-binary and use they them pronouns and like like I I found it weirdly relatable at least within like um i don't know it's like we there there is a lot we have a lot of like caricatures built up about like what like the right looks like and um here in here in the united states and like and like you know a lot of it's like these depictions to me are like very spot on i'm like i've met both of these people you know (laughs) and um but it's like I've also met that version of Tanner who's like, like, yeah, center right has some like wacky like thoughts about the world, listens to Earl Swanson or whatever. And but like at that core, just like, you know, it's like they're like, oh, well, this person hasn't harmed me. They seem nice and like they want to be called this thing. And I, I'm I was told that was like 
dangerous, but I'm like, oh, but but I just want to refer to people how they want to be referred to. It's like, I don't know, you know, it's like I've met that person. I've met that person who's like, has some problematic views and also doesn't actually want to be rude or be viewed as rude to people. Is that yeah, a, especially that... I think, that, you know, on a lot of these more conservative positions that politeness is, you know, almost a virtue above all others sometimes. Um you know, the more traditional conservative view, maybe, maybe not so much <laughs> sometimes now, but, but yeah, like exactly like you say that someone doesn't want to be mean for no reason, or they don't, they might not understand it and they might have very problematic views about it, but this inherent, um, yeah, very, very conventional politeness just prevents them from, <laughs> from actually saying what they might mean or say otherwise. And when they don't necessarily, like I said, they not necessarily have this ideological position so much. Like, why would they want to be mean to another person? Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's like they view themselves as, you know, like the quote unquote, like good guys. And so it's like when they're confronted with someone who's like, oh, this is just like, this is just a person who's like, they seem nice. I don't know don't doesn't seem dangerous anymore you know it's like the it's like because that's that's the narratives that people like earl swanson are feeding people is these people are dangerous and i don't know sorry not not to harp too much on the humanity of of these characters but i think there I, i do think there's like kind of like interesting interesting things to find in those in those like interactions i don't know yeah, no, sure. I mean, I, I was talking to some people about this last night, but that this like liberal position, though, especially we saw coming up during uh, COVID, where you know, oh, Florida voted red, let them all die, type stuff. You know, everyone's redneck hicks and things. Uh, this is for me much more. Um, it's horrible, right? It's really, really terrible. And that there are a lot of people who, I mean, okay, maybe a lot of people who wouldn't even attempt to use the right pronouns or that do genuinely hold some more problematic views, but fundamentally they're still people. We can't just write off half of everyone because they, <laughs> because they vote the wrong way or we don't have to accept their positions, but we have to accept that they are people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, I don't know. It's like, I think about it as, you know, again, like talking to like people like where I'm like, okay, yeah, y'all got some problematic views and when I talk about pronouns, you like try at least. <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm super, I'd be super interested to hear about like, um, so uh, you have, sp- you have spent some time living in the United States, but I'm like, I'm curious what I'm, I'm curious, like how kind of like American, like, you know, preparedness prepper culture is viewed from not the united states yeah i mean i've you know sort of got a background in anarchist circles and things so a lot of the more community preparedness uh sides are more universal especially when we're talking about climate resilience and um food sustainability or you know local food sustainability and production and these kind of ideas um and you know, even just decommodification of some of these things to provide them for ourselves, even 
without a massive sudden crisis or something. Um, so I'm like more familiar with these kind of ideas, but the specifically like a right wing American version or US version uh, is kind of interesting. You know, like one of the the first uh, experiences I had coming to the US that that I found quite interesting was went to the supermarket the first or second day I was there. And there was just a guy with a hunting knife strapped to his thigh that was like down to his knee, you know, just walking around. And this kind of stuff, I mean, okay, not necessarily prepper ideology, but it just really threw me off the, the, the these kind of things happen and how the, the way that this then, or the types of things they're being prepared for, I guess is what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. I just find kind of very, very funny. I mean, that was part of the reason for choosing the the frozen dinners, apart from the symbolic value of it, is that as a way to prepare for the end of the world, they're like the the worst kind of food you could have. You know, they've got the highest sort of, um, they require the most convenience infrastructure, right? You need a freezer, you need some kind of like microwave or something. They're like a very useless, <laughs> useless way to prepare. Uh, I find it yeah. kind of funny, you know, they, uh, Blake talks about when he builds his bunker that there were a bunch of useless fruit trees and stuff there, so he tore them out to put in a put in a freezer full of frozen foods. Right? <laughs> just, yeah, I find uh, I find the approach very strange, and it's incredibly individualistic. I guess is the main point, and assumes uh, a level of comfort that might not necessarily be there if the end of the world came. Yeah, yeah, and there's these. <laughs> I don't know. There's just, there's some really fun quotations that I'd really love to just highlight from the story that kind of relate to that. Like um, them talking about, you know, when we're talking about food, they're like, oh, they've been luring people in with food or like they've been, I think Blake says like they've been feeding people right under our noses. And I'm like that, that's like, that that's what you do during disasters is you feed people. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, not so much even on the prepper side of things, but uh, just the attitude of people towards a lot of the sweeps and stuff, right? The, the, the absolute dehumanization of people that just don't have somewhere else to live. Mm-hmm. Um, that all of a sudden, the, not even that they don't deserve anything, but that anyone who helps them is a criminal and encouraging encouraging the fall of the u.s empire or something and i just i mean i find these attitudes just deeply inhuman um i don't know i just mm. the story is mainly a joke as <laughs> i'm not trying to highlight too much i think that most people know most of these things right especially people that are listening to this podcast but i just wanted to have some fun with some of it totally yeah i i i really appreciate that is like you know we we do like live like the world is dying and we talk about a lot about like preparedness and we like usually approach it from these like really like um you know these much more like serious views and we're always like the it's like the danger of the right the danger of bunker mentality um the and you know with with good reason it's like those things are scary and like the world is having some why you know wild things are happening in the world right now and I really appreciated this kind of like bit of humor about it to be like, yeah, here's this funny tale. Um, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I had to do a lot of research into all the different types of guns because I'm not so familiar with them. I mean, okay, there's like three types of guns, but I still had to go look up what they were because I don't know them. But that seems to be the number one uh, the number one thing to do if you're right wing pepper is build a bunker and put like 70,000 guns in there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, extreme forethought on the guns and not that much forethought on like food. Yeah, or access to water or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, or just like it's like community, you know. Like it's that's I don't know. That's one of my big things with like bunker mentality. It's like okay, you've built the bunker where you're gonna like survive the collapse or whatever, and and then what? You're just like alone in a bunker. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound like a good place to end up. I'd rather like build these like communities that can kind of like get through things together and like take care of each other and yeah i I think you can have a lot better chance of getting through something (laughs) with a group of people around with you know varying skill sets and expertise and experience and so on but also like you say i mean i just i don't want to end up by myself in a bunker that sounds like not a lot of fun (laughs) it's not really a life i want to live um how do you how do people how do people talk about kind of like community preparedness? Um, I guess in 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 Europe or uh, Portugal. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, it's not so much of a. All right, things here maybe haven't broken down quite as much as they have where you are. <laughs> there aren't there aren't the contradictions haven't sharpened. I think was the the word you used before. Um, yeah, quite as much as they they maybe have. So people are much more interested in um, or not interest, maybe more focused on finding ways to to provide things for ourselves in the moment without a market, right? So finding ways to access housing and to access food and to provide food, there's um, at least as much hyperbole and xenophobia and panic about refugees in Europe as there is about people coming into the U.S., and so trying to, you know, build links with these communities and things, I think are much more focused on. So what the the sorts of community care that people are doing here um, is more immediate. It's not really aimed at the future. It's kind of aimed at, at now. So it has a different character, right? Yeah. Which, I don't know, it's like we, there, like stuff like that certainly happens here where it's like people there's just so much to respond to. There's so many bad things happening that it, mm. it does feel hard to adequately be able to like plan for the future because we are constantly uh, reacting to like what is currently happening. Yeah. I mean, I think there's <laughs> plenty of people trying to, trying to make life better right now in the U S too. But um, yeah, I think uh, maybe, maybe there's not quite the same expectation that it's all going to, all gonna go to shit soon here um mm-hmm. <laughs> right away oh yeah no that's an interesting difference because here it's like there's just so much that it like feels hard to stay on top of it but we all know stuff's gonna get real bad um, <laughs> yeah yeah whereas there it seems like like two people have more optimistic views of stuff not getting bad or they're just like not thinking about it or i mean a lot of it's just kind of more hidden um, because there are, you know, stronger welfare states in in some parts of Europe, so things aren't as immediately bad for, you know, as many people. It's still 
very bad for plenty of people, <laughs> but but there's not as many people who are facing the same immediate problems. Um, and they're sort of lurking in the background, you know, like, but I think they're, they haven't been brought into focus as much as the US um, has. That makes sense. Um, I guess, like, I always, like, I usually ask this at the beginning of the story, but it's, like, or at the beginning of the interview, but, like, um, and, you know, we've talked about a lot of this already, but, like, what what is kind of, like, the story behind this story? Like, why is this, why is this an important story for people now? I think it's first important to sometimes laugh at these things because otherwise you just despair. Um, <laughs> and like I said, I wrote this for myself as a joke initially. Yeah. So for me, it was important for me to write, not, not necessarily ever planned for anyone to read. Um, yeah. But I, I think, so I mean, this is maybe stretching the definition of utopia a little bit, but I think that thinking about what worlds could look like is incredibly important you know the i think it's bookchin says that the change comes from the difference of what people see their life to what they can imagine it to be like basically the, the, the bigger this differential um the more likely people are to act and i think by expanding the sort of normative horizons of what we can expect of the world I think this is like quite important, genuinely. Like I said, it might be stretching it a little bit to apply that to uh, this story, but I think it's maybe a funny look at at, at changes um, happening, right? I mean, <laughs> it's somewhat utopian to imagine that a city in the US could fall. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, the 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 you know whatever. I love that the like the mechanism of collapse of like whatever's happening in the story is really vague. You know, I'm like, did something happen? Was there just like an insurrection, but like whatever happened, like, I don't know, those, these, these anarchists are really on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't want to, didn't want to go too much into that and make it some sort of, you know, (laughs) 10 pages on how to do a revolution because I mean, who am I to talk about that? And, and we've had that and got that and you know this is a much bigger more serious discussion but um totally also it didn't make any sense for tanner and blake to like know how that happened <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. yeah no i love that we're wrapped up in the mystery of that yeah and i think you know we wanted to suggest that some things are very basic things like like you mentioned before just you know i mean feeding people for a long time recruiting people by helping you know helping people and <laughs> convincing them that their side is better because actually their side was like nice to them and helped them and, you know, gave them some agency and, uh, or how dastardly of them. Yeah. So dastardly. <laughs> um, but yeah, or sorry, just to, just to go back real quick to this. Um, it's like, uh, it's fun. It's funny. Cause I think maybe we're, we maybe have different terms that we might use, but um. Like I, for instance, like I feel resistant to the idea of like kind of utopian thinking, but like something that I think is really important is like, and I think Bakchan like talks about this idea, or at least like Cindy Milstein talks about this idea a lot, is like um, prefigurative like organizing mm-hmm. or like prefigurative visioning, which is like I don't really I don't know enough about these things to like 
like the difference between utopianism and prefigurative visioning, but like prefigurative visioning being like, we want to build the world that we want to live in now and not like wait for the future or for it to like be too late or something. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of debate over what utopianism is, if it's good, if it's bad, if it's whatever. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'll use the word and other people can disagree. Uh, but I, I exactly agree. Like, I think, you know, prefigurative politics is, is what we need to be doing. We need to build the world that we want to live in, but like, we need to have an idea of what world we want to live in to do that. And so I think if we hold it out as a horizon that we can move towards, it's not some fixed blueprint of how we want the world to be, but rather that we can just continuously imagine and change and reflect on and we can bring little bits and pieces of it into the here and now you know like i've mentioned a couple of times with people trying to find you know ways to feed themselves in their communities and other ways to access housing and other ways to to just exist right now i mean we need to have some idea of how to do this and i think if we can if we can conjure especially as writers i think if we can conjure some of these ideas of utopia and people could take bits and pieces and try it. We can experiment. We can see if it works. If it doesn't work, we can update our idea of utopia. Um, but it's important that it's a, a practice, not a, uh, not some far off vision. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I totally, totally agree. And that's like one of the, that's like one of the natures of like you know anarchism or like what anarchic philosophies is like this adaptability or like the ability to like experiment and be like oh golly that didn't work well we're gonna we we thought it would but it didn't so we're gonna try <laughs> something different and see if that works better for people like yeah yeah like, exactly change your visions change i don't know yeah and we try ways of i don't know something as simple as try a, a way of organizing some some collective or something and then you find out that actually maybe we didn't need like 10 pages of different bureaucratic structures to stop like power accumulating in one place too much. And maybe we could just like wing it a bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we are nearing the end of our time. Um, but is there, are there any, is there any last things you want to say about this story um, or like questions that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Um, I don't, I don't think there's anything that I was, uh, really itching to say <laughs> that, that didn't get mentioned. I mean, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, like I said, I was worried about this story. Maybe just to mention that the, um, the, the misogyny that comes across as, you know, as the, the characters are not speaking for a reason. So maybe I'll just mention that in case anyone's worried about it, but, um, <laughs> um totally, totally. Yeah. No, I think there's. Yeah, it was a good discussion. I enjoyed talking about it. Great. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe that's like my final question about the story is like, um, uh, we talked a little bit off air about this, but like there being like some nervousness around like how the story would be perceived. And I was wondering could you, if you wanted to say just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, writing from these perspective i mean for the perspective of someone who holds some racist views some misogynistic views they're gonna have a racist and misogynistic perspective and it would be kind of weird not to have that like it in the writing <laughs> it would feel <laughs> off somehow um so i mean okay obviously i'm not using slurs and stuff and i think in some ways yeah. you know we mentioned this slightly before but that in some ways this is a caricature and in some ways it's toned down. Like I think if these characters had actually had this happen in real life, there would have been a lot 
the language would have been a lot stronger in a lot of cases, um, even if they behaved slightly more sensibly in some cases, right? I think there was a tension there. But I think this was a, a very nervous story. And so far, everyone that's read it has, uh, what's the word? They've, they've been very graceful, giving me a lot of grace or uh, goodwill, I guess, <laughs> in, in reading it. Assumed I had good intentions, which is very nice. Um, but yeah, it was definitely very nervous submitting it. <laughs> with to people that don't know me at all and I don't know them and they could have read it in a different way. So yeah, that, that went a lot better than I was maybe hoping. <laughs> and that that's all very understandable. I thought it was we like I don't know, we thought it was hilarious at strangers. So like Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I had some nervousness because we the where we ended the first the first for the first part was like uh the kind of big reveal really hasn't happened yet i really hope people <laughs> stick with this and like are viewing it as a caricature which or as like a satire um which i thought was pretty obvious from the from the beginning so yeah it's hard to hard to satire some things these days i mean all right it's a bit cliche to say that satire is dead it's definitely not you can still do it but <laughs> it's getting difficult you know yeah, well, it's like, I don't know, like, there's this, um, <laughs> this is a weird plug. Um, <laughs> there's this really silly movie that came out a while ago called um, Dark Dungeons. And it's, it's a, it's, it's a movie that some people made about this, like, chick track from, of, like, evangelical, this, like, evangelical comic about, like, how dungeons and dragons the game will like make your it's <laughs> queer and like it's about they're just trying to summon cthulhu and um they like so people made a movie of it and the movie is incredible and like you watch it and you're like wow this is a hilarious satire and the creators of the movie were like this is not a satire we didn't change anything this is a sober like uh rendition <laughs> of these events and they yeah, this is a documentary. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's like these things where it's like, like, yeah, maybe it's not the appropriate thing to call it a satire because it's like it's just presenting it as it is. Like, the, you know, does that make sense? This yeah, I mean, as the world gets more ridiculous, it's you know you have to do less work to do satire, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, are you working on any anything else or have anything that you would like to plug? Um, nothing really to plug. I mean, I'm writing, like I said, I like, I like the idea of utopia as, you know, we could disagree on maybe, but, <laughs> and the idea of different perspectives and different utopias and how this could be. So I'm, I'm working on, you know, a collection of short stories of, you know, different utopias from different points of view. Um, so you know, maybe people can find that on Strangers. I don't know. Um, in the future, uh, but yeah. yeah, that's about it. Cool. Um, are you? Can you be found on the internet anywhere where you would like to be found? No. Great. I love when people <laughs> don't want to be found on the internet. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, uh, it's not my not my favorite place to be. Yeah. It's it's a weird place. Yeah, and I <laughs> I think we probably have more similar views than i think the, the word utopian is like a it's like a kicker word to me i'm like but I, it seems like we have pretty pretty like resonant resonant views on on those things <laughs> <laughs> um so just to just to end out the episode we do this like um 
word of the month, um, which is I'm going to tell you a word. I'm going to ask you if you know any of its origins or like any guesses about its origins. And then I will tell you a little bit about the word. Um, okay, excellent. I can't wait to sound pretentious so, uh, by yeah. guessing the origins of something. <laughs> um, so you know the word apocalypse. I do. Do you know what it, what it, what does the word apocalypse mean to you, and where do you think the word might come from? Yeah, so apocalypse. Uh, I'm probably just going to embarrass myself here. Like the the end of the world, something like this, right? <laughs> Maybe it doesn't mean this, um, but where it comes from. No idea. I mean, the only thing I can think of that's similar to it is like Calypso, and I'm sure that's not, that's very far away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have looked up Calypso. I didn't make that connection. I'm going to have to look. I'm, there might be, a, there's, there's usually connections. Um, yeah, you know, it means, it means the end of the world. That's what we've come to, Lucky. Good. that's the meaning that we've come to have. Yeah. Um, and uh, Margaret actually posted something about this um, recently, and I was like, which is why I'm doing this word. I was like, oh, that that is an interesting word. Um, but, you know, apocalypse from the Greek uh, apocalyptin, which means uncovering. Um, and it has these two components. There's apo and kalyptin. Apo meaning off or away from, and kalyptin meaning to cover or conceal. Um, and then, it, you know, the, the the root word kel goes to form some other words, like in Latin, there's hmm. celar, which means, or kelar, which means um, to hide. The derivative, there's a derivative of kol, which forms hall in Germanic, and haljo, which means hidden place. And it's like the source of the old Norse word for like the deity hell, who like rules the underworld. And then also like the Christian hell, as in like the bad place. Um, and you know, it's famously like uh, the Book of Revelations was. It was originally called like, or it was since it was named in Greek, it was Apocalyptin, um, or sorry, Apocalypse, which was a derivative of Apocalyptin. And it's it's an interesting word to me because it's like, and it I always try to pick a word that in some way applies to the story, which is like. Apocalypse meaning disaster or cataclysm wasn't a component of the word until like the 19, 19th century or something. And prior to that, it was like a it was a word that was like uncovering or like revealing things that have been hidden. And like I think disasters kind of do that. They like reveal simmering things in our society that like are apparent to a lot of people, but not apparent to everyone. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Not that right. interesting of a word, but yeah. if they're big enough disasters, maybe they can reveal some sort of pathway to utopia. You know, we'll see. Yeah, or at least like, or in like again to use this phrase, like these like sharpening contradictions of like, mm. uh, for which is like I think applicable to a lot of people who are like not, you know, not like anarchists or like people who are like spend are confronted with these things in their lives like all the time but like for people who are like are more hidden away from these like realities and like being fed propaganda by people is like that these systems or structures that they've like put faith in are like not designed to help them and <laughs> that that would become more obvious to them so that we can build a better world with more people 
that sounds great. Yeah, no, that's a good place to good place to end with apocalypse. I think that maybe it can lead us to something better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I hate this kind of this lining up with the Book of Revelations. It's a weird. It's a weird book. Christian <laughs> mythology is really weird. <laughs> but, anyways, um, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we will catch you next time. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then prepare for the apocalypse. Or just tell someone about the show. Or tell someone about the show and then prepare for the apocalypse together. That's that's the ticket. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the nameless algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But really, but really just tell people about the show and prepare for the apocalypse. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the better one of the better ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, consider supporting the show financially financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we'll mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Oh, and uh, current Inman, future Inman, uh, looked up the origins of Calypso, and, you know, Calypso's a Greek word. It absolutely has the same roots as Apocalypse, or at least um, the, like, Calypso having the root, uh, Kel, meaning to conceal, and so Calypso literally meaning hidden one, or one that hides. So these these words are absolutely related and that's that's kind of cool. That's all I got. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy, our zine layout is by Cassandra, and thanks to the lovely mountain goblins that mail out our feature every month. I would like to give some special shout-outs to these wonderful people though, who have helped make this podcast as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Patoli, Eric, Percival, Buck, Julia, Catgut, Marm, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Janice and Odell, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. If you sign up for our $20 a month Patreon, then you can also get your name read here. And, you know, it can be it can be whatever you want. So, so you know, so if you feel like supporting us at that level, come up with a fun name for us to read every, you know, two or three times a month. It'll be fun. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Next month, uh, which is going to be a little bit earlier than usual, it's not instead of coming out on the last day of the month, it's going to come out a bit earlier in the month. So keep an eye out because it, we're going to be talking about a pretty timely thing, and that is St. Lucy's Day. Um, and which means that we have a really wonderful piece 
um, by one of my favorite writers and one of my oldest friends, uh, Ren Arai, who is bringing us a piece called St. Lucy in Anti-Hagiography. It's gonna be a lot of fun, and if you want to learn more about, uh, you know, Catholic mysticism and, like, like, other really cool things you can tell I feel really articulate right now, then, then come back and give it a listen. It's gonna be a fun time. Stay well. We hope you come back. <laughs>